Welcome to this episode of the Walter White podcast. My name is Walter White. I'm a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Reading. And today we will discuss uh, a recent publication of mine. And that is my first monograph, A Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, published by Routledge in June 2023. Now, what is the goal for this session? I will share a preview of my book. Um, hopefully, it can be seen here by everyone. And you, yourself, can download this preview on the website of Rutledge. You can go uh, and search my book. Here, if you click on Preview PDF, it will enable you to download um, a preview uh, featuring the first 32 pages or so of my book that includes its preface and uh, most of chapter one. And now the goal for today will be to read this out. Why is this something that I think is interesting? Well, students of mine, as well as myself, often struggle. Philosophy, you have to read a lot. And that can be helped. And one tool that is useful in philosophy, and for anyone else who's interested in reading a lot, learning a lot, educating themselves, recordings have been proven to be very useful. Now, I myself have listened a lot to podcasts, whether on my way to work, uh, in the gym, or on a walk. And similarly, there have been now a lot of apps created that enable you to listen to PDFs, to books, and the like, which can be very helpful um, in digesting information in moments that you would otherwise perhaps uh, not have anything otherwise useful to listen to. Well, of course, you can be free, feel free to listen to music, your favorite music in the gym, for instance, or it can be useful to spend some of this time listening to books, right? Now, for some of people I've met, including myself, this has been shown to be very useful in being able to consume much more content and learn much more than you might have otherwise been able to, given time constraints. And so I hope to read out here parts of my book, hopefully raise some interests among potential readers, and also discuss some of the ideas to give you some overview of what the book is about, why I decided to write it, and so forth. And now let's dive right in. Now, in order to get access to my book, you can also go on my website here, walterwhite.com. And when you click on download preview, similar to um, the download links for others of my papers, it should give you then um, a new window where you can have access to this file. But as I said, you can also download this from the website of Rutledge itself. Now, um, it's a beautiful cover. I'm very thankful to Francesca Conero, a PhD student at the University of Cambridge um, in Nikki Clayton's Comparative Cognition Lab, very famous for studying intelligence um, and the mental tricks of Corvitz including ravens, 
uh, crows and the like, which have been shown to be very smart. Once upon a time before to be just stupid birds. And yet that was a mistake. Now I've spent some time during my PhD in this lab and must be very, was very thankful to be able to observe some of the experiments being done, um, as well as uh, show how researchers have to engage with these birds, have to build their own personal relationships and even to even be able to use them as partners for their studies, right? So a lot of animals are very neophobic. They have fear of strangers. So in order to make them participate in any experiments that you might be interested in, in order to probe their intelligence, you'll actually have to spend months often uh, building a relationship, feeding them um, before you can run any experiments. So this note aside, the goal of this book, A Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, was to provide us with a new philosophy that can guide empirical research, rigorous research into the question of animal consciousness, a question that was for a long time seen as something deeply problematic, something we could never access. And yet in this book, I hope to take some of the skepticism away um, towards a scientific rigorous investigation of animal consciousness, that we can make progress on answering the question what it's like to be another animal. Now, this book resulted out of my PhD thesis, which is also freely available on my website. So if you don't have the budget uh, to buy my book, say, um, that will be a cheap alternative. Um, now, it's not identical, but a lot of the ideas are, of course, the same. Um, so I could encourage you very much to go on my website, search my PhD thesis there, download it, read that. And perhaps if you find that interesting, buy the book. Um, after all, it has a beautiful cover. Um, but also the content, I think, um, is at least uh, interesting, I would say. Adequate, perhaps. Uh, I don't want to praise the book too much, but certainly writing this book meant a lot to me. And I hope that the arguments will convince a lot of perhaps skeptics that animal consciousness is something worth investigating that isn't just, um, yeah, just inherently, needlessly, and hopelessly speculative enterprise, but something we can really make progress on. Now, to have a little introduction here, A Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, this book attempts to advance Donald Griffin's vision of the final crowning chapter of the Darwinian Revolution. By developing a philosophy for the science of animal consciousness, it advocates a Darwinian bottom-up approach that treats consciousness as a complex, evolved, and multi-dimensional phenomenon. In nature, rather than a mysterious all-or-nothing property, immune to the tools of science and restricted to a single species. So the so-called emergence of a science of consciousness in the 1990s has at best been a science of human consciousness. 
the book aims to advance a true Darwinian science of consciousness in which its evolutionary origin, function, and phylogenetic diversity are moved from the field's periphery to its very center, thus enabling us to integrate consciousness into an evolutionary view of life. Accordingly, this book has two objectives. Firstly, to argue for the need and possibility of an evolutionary bottom-up approach that addresses the problems of consciousness in terms of the evolutionary um, origins of a new ecological lifestyle that made consciousness worth having, and secondly, to articulate a thesis and beginnings of a theory of the place of consciousness as a complex evolved phenomenon in nature that can help us to answer the question of what it is like to be a pet, an octopus, or a crow. Philosophy for the science of animal consciousness will appeal to researchers and advanced students interested in advancing our understanding of animal minds, as well as anyone with a keen interest in how we can develop a science of animal consciousness. Now here, I'm still described as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bristol. The book was published before I started my lectureship at the University of Reading. But it is still true that my research interests here can be described as stretching widely across science and philosophy, while primarily being located in the intersection of the biological, social, and mind sciences, in addition to empirically informed philosophy and ethics. Now, I was very lucky to receive um, stellar endorsements by important figures in the field, such as Peter Singer, um, an important, um, perhaps one of the most important members of the animal rights movement, who has described my book as follows, in a philosophy for the science of animal consciousness, Walter White argues for more thoroughly, Darwinian approach to understanding how consciousness has come into existence and in which beings it is to be found. By shifting the focus away from human consciousness, he helps us to understand the diversity of forms of consciousness that exist in other animals. Now, Franz de Waal, who's very influential for his research on great apes, um, has similarly praised the book, which I'm very thankful for, saying, the a priori position that human consciousness differs from that in other animals has become hard to defend. In an eye-opening account, Walter White explains why. As a true philosopher, he delves into both the richness and ambiguity of the concept of consciousness. What I call another, a philosopher um, of mind and cognitive science. Similarly, praised my book, again, thank you, uh, saying Walter White takes a deep, historically and empirically informed look at the origins of cognitive ethology and re-centers the field of Donald Griffin's original idea that it's consciousness in animals that really matters. He tackles the question of how to fit an account of consciousness into the life histories of individual animals using a Darwinian framework that emphasizes the variety and adaptive radiation of forms and functions of consciousness in the evolutionary tree. Now, Donald Griffin is here again mentioned um, he was the founder of cognitive ethology and is one of the discoverers of bad echolocation, an ability that was once seen very skeptical eyes by scientists. And Donald Griffin, from these experiences, from the skepticism that he received, um, came to realize that we have to overcome a lot of skepticism in order to convince the public and other scientists that animals often have uh, astonishing cognitive abilities that we may not have um, 
perhaps believed prior to seeing the empirical evidence. And Colin Allen has talked to Donald Griffin before he died, unfortunately, in how we could have such a science that really progresses our understanding of the mind. Now, finally, Keith Frankish, also a philosopher of mind, um, working uh, on consciousness, nicely said that something that explaining consciousness is beyond the scope of evolutionary theory. Undeterred, Walter White rolls up his sleeves and gets on with the task. Drawing on the latest work in evolutionary biology, cognitive ethology, and neuroeconomics, he reverse engineers consciousness, distinguishing its different dimensions and components and identifying its roots in an ancient evolutionary system which evolved to manage the complex action selection problems faced by early forms of animal life. This is a pioneering and important book, which is informed throughout by an awareness of the rich diversity of animal life and experience. It will challenge your view on consciousness and transform your attitude to your fellow creatures. Thanks again. And now, Carolyn Aristo uh, was a student um, of Donald Griffin and also helped in developing this field tremendously forward. Now, currently, she's an independent scholar, and she, again, praised my book uh, in words that I wouldn't use myself, uh, saying, Walter White has written a very thoughtful and thought-provoking philosophical exploration of the evolutionary origins of consciousness. He aims to bring us closer to a true biological science of animal consciousness, what Donald R. Griffin, the founder of the field of cognitive ethology, termed the crowning chapter of the Darwinian revolution. That chapter is to be written by studying the mental experiences of animals in their daily lives and natural worlds. White's work exhibits the fruitfulness of the growing collaborations between philosophers and scientists of animal behavior to the clear benefit of both. He gives serious considerations to the problem of consciousness and the evolution of forms of consciousness, integrating the work of many disciplines and delineating the likely functional significance of consciousness and its varieties in different species. White offers persuasive arguments and examples that evaluative consciousness lies at the core of the phenomenon of consciousness, though leaving enough to argue about and discuss fruitfully as to the other characteristics that may be strong contenders of that role. His work is a significant contribution to the field and well worth diving into. Thanks again. Now, having to spend... Uh, a bit too much time on this, it offers, I think, a very nice um, elaboration of the ideas I defend in this book. I want to investigate the evolution of consciousness in order to make progress in the science of animal consciousness. In order to really develop such a science, I argue we must focus our understanding of why this capacity evolved and what role it plays for the lives of other animals. And now, let's dive right in. I dedicate this book to my parents. Thank you. Who were supportive, um, at least um, largely, in my pursuit of a philosophical career. And now let's go to the contents of this book. In the first chapter, I try to give an overview of the main ideas of the book, introduce some ideas, as well as um, illuminate, uh, extra, uh, explicate 
what it means to have uh, true Darwinian science of consciousness. And I really focus here on how Darwin can help us to revolutionize our understanding and include consciousness in biology and not just see it as uh, one very mysterious phenomenon that we may or may not uh, try to explain, but something that's really integral for biology and will, as Donald Griffin put it, bring the Darwinian revolution to conclusion. In chapter two, um, I outline um, how we should account for the diversity of consciousness, of what I call phenomenological complexity, rather than just treating as an all or nothing property. Also, um, shining light on a lot of experimental tests that have been developed in order to make progress on measuring these capacities in other animals to really show that this is not just speculation. In the third chapter, I try to um, delineate the different dimensions of consciousness we might distinguish and try to really focus on which dimension is the most plausible contender for the evolutionary origins of consciousness. Then, in chapter four, I give an account of why this dimension of consciousness arose, how the first beings came into existence that had subjective experience due to what I call an explosion in pathological complexity. I'll quickly explain this once we make it to chapter one. And then in the fifth chapter, I use my framework in order to outline how scientists can make predictions about the subjective experience of other animals, which can in turn be tested. And then finally, I outline how we can achieve what Donald Griffin called the final crowning chapter of the Darwinian revolution. Now, to move to the preface, in search of the place of mind in nature. The target phenomenon of this monograph is one that could hardly constitute a greater challenge to a paleobiologist. It is a phenomenon that is said to leave no facile trace and has repeatedly been described as the hardest problem of biology, consciousness. In nature, we seem to find a striking difference between systems without any sort of conscious experience, like Australian bushfires, the plants that succumb to them, robots, bacteria, our planet, other stars, and the universe as a whole. And those systems, like humans, for which there is something it is like to be them, or so most take for granted. When we ask whether there is something it is like to be a bat or any other living organism for that matter, we are asking both whether they have subjective experiences of any kind and what these experiences consist in. Yet, how could we possibly learn about the nature of this elusive phenomenon? The problem of consciousness have for a long time puzzled both scientists and philosophers, even deemed exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to answer. What is consciousness and why does it exist at all? Could consciousness come in degrees and different variations, or is it like a light switch that is either on or off? Finally, which animals are conscious, and do they differ in their subjective experiences? Are humans the only conscious beings on our planet? Or should we include all animals, birds as well, or all the animals? Why not say that all life is sentient? This view is sometimes called biopsychism, and though it will strike many as surely too strong, that does not like mean that it lacks uh, defenders. 
Now, the German biologist, philosopher, and artist Ernst Haeckel, who has sometimes been described as the German Darwin for his devout defense and development of Darwin's theoretical framework in Germany, was the one who coined the term biopsychism. But he eventually went on to defend an even broader view called panpsychism, the view that all matter is insult and that feeling should be conceived of as a universal world principle. Now, contemporary panpsychists think that our fundamental scientific image of physics needs to be radically updated to include an aspect or degree of mentality in all matter, such as electrons, in order to make sense of the presence of minds. A view that some of its proponents at least admit is radically rejected by most philosophers and non-philosophers alike as, to put it bluntly, absurd. Yet, again, this view has very prominent defenders, such as Thomas Nagel and David Chalmers, who have been incredibly influential in shaping the philosophical and scientific discourse around consciousness, and really urge us to take this option seriously. They hold that the problems of panpsychism are no more serious than those of any other view. Though Nagel also admits that the view has the faintly sickening order of something put together in the metaphysical laboratory. But while it appears easy enough to dismiss such radical views as going too far, it is also apparent that there is little agreement on how we could even possibly settle the question. There is a wild sweep of alternatives. Disagreement about the possibility of pain in fish or invertebrates such as insects sometimes appears no less contested than a metaphysical view that consciousness pervades the universe. Largely, this is due to a worry the British biologist Thomas Huxley, also known as Darwin's bulldog, once famously, famously expressed, and here I quote, What consciousness is, we know not, and how it is that anything so remarkably as a state of consciousness comes about as the result of irritating nervous tissue is just as unaccountable as the appearance of the jinn when Aladdin rubbed his lamp in the story, or as any other ultimate fact of nature. So Huxley did not perceive how we could possibly explain consciousness as this causally efficacious materialist phenomenon that really plays a role, which led him to endorse a position called epiphenomenalism. That is the dualist view that subjective experience is the only is only the effect but never the cause of the physical processes of the brain. His concerns were later better articulated by Joseph Levine, who expressed the mind-body problem in terms of what he called the explanatory gap between the mental and the physical. An epistemological rather than ontological gap he thought could only be bridged by eliminating the mental. That would be a radical non-dualist answer to the mind-body problem that many would consider to be too hard-headed. Reductive materialism, gone too far. How could we possibly eliminate the most cherished and directly experienced aspect of our mental lives? The framing now more commonly used in debates about consciousness is Chalmers' description of this explanatory gap as a so-called hard problem of consciousness. Chalmers maintained that while we can readily make progress on the easy problems of consciousness, that is the functional, computational, mechanistic side of the mind, using the standard tools and methods of cognitive science, none of this appears to address the hard problem of how it generates the first-person phenomenological feel of mental phenomena. 
what makes the hard problem hard, David Chalmers says, and almost unique is that it goes beyond problems about the performance of functions. To see this, note that even when we have explained the performance of all the cognitive and behavioral functions in the vicinity of experience, perceptual discrimination, categorization, internal access, verbal report, there may still remain a further unanswered question. Why is the performance of these functions accompanied by experience? A simple explanation of the functions leaves this question open. So he claims. Now, the framing of this problem of consciousness, unfortunately, makes it appear as if science could never address the qualitative field, that is the qualia of subjective experience. Following Nagel's famous essay, What is Like to be a Bet, in which he set out to argue that while bets are likely conscious, we could never know what this objective experience was like. Phenomenal, phenomenological properties or qualia are now typically treated as something like a second order property, or what it is like, what it feels like to have a mental state, as opposed to a first order property of the state itself. See, for instance, Sitzma and Machery, 2010. Now, thanks to Chalmers and Nagel's influence on the philosophy of mind, it is now typical to consider the problem of consciousness as identical to the problem of qualia, rather than of a particularly rich cognitive phenomenon with qualitative aspects that may be unique to humans, as it was in the literature of the philosophy of mind in the 1980s, which has been very much emphasized by Peter Godfrey Smith. Could this combination of two formally distinct problems have given rise to the increasing conviction among many philosophers and scientists that there is something like a hard problem that cannot be solved? Well, an even more radical rejection of the idea that science could provide a materialist account of consciousness can be found in the form of idealism, that is, the romanticist notion that everything's mental. What are we to make of this, what Godfrey Smith candidly called a wild sweep of these alternative views of the universe. In thinking about the mind, the place of mind in nature, there almost appears to be a dreadful possibility that anything goes. And this is not restricted to mere philosophical discussions about the very nature of mind. If we ask about the presence of other minds in non-humans, it appears we are faced with just as much uncertainty as with the big picture view about the relationship between matter and mind, at least two senses in which we can ask for the place of mind in nature. Now, how are we to respond to a biopsychist who points to the autonomy, sophisticated sensory feedback and decision-making of single-celled organisms? To assert that all of the actions of an animal could be explained by mere mechanics without a presence of mind is a tactic frequently used in discussions over all kinds of possible boundaries, including fish, insects, and mammals. Why is someone wrong who denies pain in octopuses and crabs? How could we possibly settle these debates about where to draw a line? Many answers to this question of the place of mind in nature have been proposed, such as the eliminativist or illusionist view that no one has consciousness in the sense of possessing qualia, the exclusive attribution of consciousness to humans. Now, I won't read out all the references here, but please look 
at the screen if you're interested in who um, defends these particular views, or of course, look at the book. Um, only to the great apes, only to the mammals and birds, to all mammals, to all vertebrates, as well as some invertebrate groups, such as cephalopods, crustaceans, and insects, to plants as well, to all living organisms, including single-celled ones, and to all entities in the universe. Views on the presence of consciousness range from none to all, right? Now, when we are faced with such diversity of alternative models of consciousness that it appears almost like we have what has in similar context been called an embarrassment of riches, um, it seems that without the standard here for thinking about these problems of the mind, it almost seems like anything goes, right? Godfrey Smith put it here that people can say whatever they like. This view of philosophy as a state of indefinite arbitrariness is to be strongly resisted. Following a tradition of naturalist thinkers, this book firmly rejects the view common in some areas of philosophy that our profession is primarily engaged in a game of male conceptual exploration, that philosophy is merely concerned with expanding the space of possible views. And the following chapters in my book constitute an exercise in naturalistic philosophy to make sense of the place of consciousness in nature, by providing the science of consciousness this much-needed standard that is unfortunately still lacking. The standard that I'm going to argue for is a Darwinian standard, as perhaps is clear from how much I've emphasized that this book is about evolution of consciousness. So as other Darwinian thinkers have argued, this standard should not be the cherished insight derived from human first-person experience, but the modern 21st century of evolutionary biology. It is in this theory that we can find a biological approach to consciousness that should um, that should, we shouldn't be neutral towards. In order to understand consciousness, we have to treat it like other biological phenomena. So it is only by investigating the evolutionary origins of consciousness and the ecological lifestyles of these first conscious entities that we will truly understand the place of consciousness in nature without being misled by the particularities, idiosyncrasies, and complexities of the human mind. The shared ancestry of all life on Earth provides us with a rich set of theoretical tools and constraints with which to understand the origins of biological phenomena. And of course, consciousness is just that. An evolved biological phenomenon, something that is now widely accepted among both philosophers and scientists writing about consciousness. So one would, one would be led to believe, as the neuroscientists Mona Günzburg and evolutionary biologist Ivo Jablonka note in the recent 2019 book, The Evolution of the Sensitive Soul, that philosophers and scientists alike had firmly integrated evolutionary theory into the framework of consciousness studies both as a yardstick for measuring the validity of new theories and as some as a source of insights. This is what they argue, and they've influenced me with their work a lot as well. I also take an evolutionary approach of consciousness. So we're very similar in our advocacy for taking a strong Darwinian approach to this phenomenon. Now, Darwin himself, or had already realized 21 years prior to the publication of The Origin of Species in a private little notebook of his, 
um, that a view of life in terms of shared ancestry would radically transform our view of nature and our place within it. As he put it, origins of man now proved. Metaphysics must flourish. He who understands baboon would do more towards metaphysics than Locke. Darwin, 1838. And now, well, I said it. And despite the many efforts of Darwinian thinkers, there's been no biological revolution in our thinking about consciousness. Evolutionary and ecological thinking about the role of consciousness in nature has so far only played a surprisingly small role in the study of consciousness. Ginsberg and Jablonka described this lack of Darwinian thinking within a supposedly naturalistic study of consciousness highly critically. Until very recently, they say, there has been a strange lacuna in the field Although most scientists and philosophers who wrote about consciousness are now convinced that it is a biological process that is a product of evolution, its evolutionary origins are rarely central to their discussions. 2019, page X. Undoubtedly, this can be explained for the perceived difficulty and speculative nature of adaptationist reverse engineering approaches to the mind especially the human mind, which have been sneered at as just-so stories by Golden Levontin in 1979, um, which are plausibly sounding explanations that aren't empirically testable. So while there have been innumerable attempts at a functionalist account to consciousness due to its perhaps status as a standard objection to epiphenomenalist views, um, that make its evolution a mystery by denying that it has a causal role. Um, such thinking has unfortunately been often neglected and avoided investigation of its evolutionary origins in other animals, instead focusing on humans and humans alone. Right? If you think that we should address the function of consciousness, how can we avoid looking at its evolution? looking at the role it played in evolutionary history. Yet, it is no surprise that such evolutionary explanations would be avoided in a scientific investigation that was already seen as deeply suspect due to the lingering after-effects of the behaviorist project that banished consciousness from science. But this neglect of Darwinian thinking is unfortunate because evolutionary theory provides us with both a rich theoretical framework for thinking about consciousness and an important set of constraints that any theory of consciousness should account for. If we can build a theory of consciousness that doesn't leave its evolutionary origins a mystery, one that can explain the dawn of qualia, then we will be no longer in a position where people could say that no view is better than any other and all cards should be left on the table as equal contenders. A theory that can explain evolution of consciousness in a gradual fashion through small incremental steps is to be preferred over any theory that demands a dualist carving of nature at its joints, a big jump or a sudden explosion of mindedness. Instead, we would end up with a historical explanation of the place of consciousness as a complex phenomenon in nature that at least substantially narrows the explanatory gap between matter and mind. As Ginsberg and Jablonka put it, here longer block quote, Evolutionary theory is the most general framework for understanding the biological world. It is a conceptual bottleneck for which any theory of life and mind must pass. If a biological or psychological or sociological theory fails to pass through this bottleneck, it is likely that there's something seriously wrong with it. 
can find this in the introduction of the book. Um, so, like them, like most scientists studying consciousness, my book will treat consciousness as a complex evolved biological phenomenon related to the brain and nervous system of animals, something that was built over aeons of evolutionary time. But if consciousness is a biological phenomenon, then it ought to be treated as such. Where some prominent figures, such as Nagel, see the problems of consciousness as a fundamental flaw in evolutionary theory, their views have been shown to have a striking lack of knowledge and really underutilization of the theoretical toolkit modern evolutionary biology has to offer. Nagel even goes so far to say that because evolution can't explain consciousness, we have to reject perhaps the theory of evolution, which seems a very odd approach. Um, nevertheless, I think we should all agree here that if you're interested in a place of mind and nature, we must place the question of its origin, function, and phylogenetic diversity across the tree of life at the very heart of a true biological science of consciousness. It is only by asking the functionalist question of what consciousness and all of its varieties and gradations does for healthy sentient agents within the normal ecological lifestyles and the natural environments they have evolved in that we can transition towards a true biological study of consciousness. This naturalist endeavor is fundamentally what a philosophy for the science of animal consciousness will attempt to accomplish. While there have been numerous attempts to address the problems of consciousness through a functionalist evolutionary approach, many of which I will cause drawn throughout, my approach will stand out by offering a new strategy for making progress on these problems through an emphasis on animal life histories in addition to focusing on the healthy and pathological varieties and gradations of consciousness as a complex phenomenon in nature. This is why my dissertation was titled Health Agency and evolution of consciousness. Naturally, my specific proposals and theoretical sketches may turn out to be wrong, but it is only in attempting to integrate evolutionary and ecological thinking with the science of consciousness that we can truly move towards a study of consciousness as a widespread natural rather than merely human phenomenon. Right? There is a difference here. We should not confuse consciousness as a phenomenon as such with consciousness in humans. Now, to provide a possibility proof for such a bottom-up approach and evolutionary framework that can help us to think about the reason that the ultimate purpose of consciousness has for organisms within the natural lives is the goal of this book. Now, I hope uh, this was entertaining. Um, I will stop here for this episode this i think gives a nice overview of where this book is headed and then in the next episode i will provide you with a reading of the first chapter at least parts of it i believe a tiny bit of the conclusion there is cut off but this should give you a nice indication of what the book is um, trying to accomplish in more detail in the arguments. Now, there's, of course, no obligation uh, to listen to that episode. I hope you found this episode useful. Perhaps you find the book interesting. And yeah, with this, 
thanks so much for paying attention to this episode, for your interest in learning more about how we can scientifically investigate the minds of other animals. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. Yeah, and with this, I wish you a good week. Consider perhaps subscribing if you found this episode interesting and want to see the next one. And yeah, feel free to download um, this preview for yourself from my website in case that's more useful for you than just listening to me um, read it out and provide some commentary. So until next time, see you again.